Welcome to Smart Trader, your insight into the world of oil trading. Today, we're looking beyond COVID-19 to that day, which could come very soon when we hear pronouncement that a vaccine is on its way, ready for dispatch around the world, finally being shipped out to medical centres. Whatever your view on a vaccine, it's clear that actual shipments will fire the starting gun for all kinds of activity and not least in the oil markets. I'm Gavin Serkin, Managing Editor of New Markets Media and Intelligence. Joining me is Patrick Hayes, Vice President for the Americas at Inatech, experts in oil trading and marine risk management. Patrick traded for many years for the likes of UBS, Merrill Lynch, and Conoco Phillips. So welcome back, Patrick. And we welcome Greg Newman, the CEO and co-founder of Onyx Capital Group. In just four years, Onyx Commodities, the trading arm of Onyx Capital, has become the largest liquidity provider in the market for oil swaps. While research and hedging solutions from its brokerage and consulting arm have won well-deserved critical acclaim. So a warm welcome, Greg. Now, Greg, you mentioned something earlier in our conversation about your sense of mission to remove some of the complexity that engulfs the world of oil trading. And I'm sure that's going to be music to a lot of ears out there. But this is an incredibly complex business, isn't it? With swaps, options, margins between different products. So what is it exactly that the industry is overcomplicating that could be simpler? How can you avoid getting caught up in that opaque complexity if you're a regular oil trader? I think the main premise of what I believe uh, is confusing people is that when we talk about the price of oil and what we see in the news and what a lot of retail traders or even institutional uh, traders reference is you know, the Brent crude future or the WTI crude future. Now, that's just one, one future, one contract uh, pricing against one grade of uh, crude oil in one location. So it's very granular in terms of its relationship to the physical oil market. And actually, it's so overwhelmed by speculative volume. So as much as 5,000 times to one in terms of the volumes traded versus the actual underlying physical it represents. Uh, so the, that's, where, that's where I think the trouble starts is when we say oil is moving up and down, we're actually referencing these futures that aren't necessarily the prices of oil at all. And this all came very much into the picture this year with negative pricing for WTI, which was a very localized event uh, due to local um, supply and demand issues and the rest of it. Uh, and actually, some physical oil prices around the world had already been negative or were very much not negative. So it starts there. And our, the general uh, aim with Onyx is to kind of alleviate the uh, the opaqueness that comes with assessing the oil market. We need more accurate representation of what's really going on. So the markets that we trade in, the swaps, which are a form of future and they're, they're voice broked, they are um, assessed very differently and are traded um, around the world and assessed to all the physical around the world and therefore have very many different prices. So it allows you to be representative of real oil prices around the world and real oil products around the world. So rather than talk about gasoline being the ARBOB contract, the US future, 
we trade in uh, European gasoline, in uh, Singapore gasoline. There's different um, octane levels you can trade. And it goes right throughout the, the products around the world. So it's a very interesting space. And actually, when you want to know what's going on with the oil prices that affect you, whether it's uh, diesel or gasoline, or if you're a shipper, or if you're a um, plastic purchaser, anything like that, they all have their different prices, which there are derivatives for, and actually a very interesting and populated market that's growing considerably. So what we're trying to do is bridge that gap by, yes, explaining what's going on to some degree, but also providing the tools necessary to do so. We've packaged up some of the swaps that exist and made them into a more digestible uh, contracts that can be viewed on a, a you know, time series basis. And we've got a web website for that that shows you live European airline prices, for instance, or uh, shipping prices. And it's, it's complex and it takes some time, but ultimately it starts with, when we talk about the oil price, there's a very many oil prices. And that's the kind of the premise uh, or, or, or in a summary, if that makes sense. That makes complete sense. And, and that window in that uh, transparent view of the oil market with all the different products and geographic differences, I think is, is, is very much what's needed. Um, so we want to get into some of the granularity of the oil markets and outlook out there. So I'll turn to that uh, now. Let me begin by asking Greg what you're seeing in the options market to show where oil demand is heading, because we're in the midst of this fear of a sustained second wave, or maybe it's a third wave, long COVID. Um, what's the options market actually telling you? Well. I think when you say options, it's one thing, but I would kind of widen that a bit to say the financial, uh, sorry, the managed money kind of area within the financial market. So the hedge funds, the purely financial players, and ultimately the way we look at things, uh, particularly in the, um, depending on what contract you're referencing, but if we're to reference, say, the Brent futures or WTR futures, you know, we're very much use the philosophy that, well, it's not really a philosophy, use the fact that uh, it's a speculative contract. Ultimately, it's it's bought and sold by participants, and that's the only way it's going to move up and down. So it's really important to know the open interest of uh, all these participants. And managed money is actually quite a small area of, uh, or small contribution of volume to the overall open interest in the futures. But because it's largely not used for hedging, it's used for directional trading, that kind of upper layer on the... Uh, on the Brent futures or the futures market uh, can have quite a bit of a sway. So it's always important to know how that area is positioned. And, and how, think, how do you see it positioned right now? I was just about to say, sorry. Yeah. Um, so the way I've uh, just by looking at CFTC report, we're seeing a tentative bullish market, uh, sorry, bullish positioning, i.e. Uh, there are more bulls than there are um, bears, uh, but it's probably the lowest that's been in, in well, at least 12 months, I think it was 18 months. Uh, and that ratio is, for me, just saying that there's a lack of risk appetite. It's not so much that we believe the market's going to go up rather than down. I just think on balance, people have had either a great year or tumultuous year, and they're in a wait and see approach. It's not really surprising. It's, it's very common. And how the market is positioned, generally speaking, is is flat or, or um, bullish is what I'd say. There was talk um, probably about two months ago of some considerable volumes going through in the put options uh, for, as you say, potentially another second wave. 
But really, um, I don't see it as particularly meaningful now. I'd say if you just watch the price action, it's almost 90% correlated with the, uh, the NASDAQ, with the tech stocks. Uh, it's driving a lot of the macro market at the moment. So when there's a sell-off there, there's a sell-off in Brent, and we're in this very tight range. Uh, and that's what's driving things at the moment, the, the macro kind of futures rather than any specific oil future uh, directional trades. And I think that will continue to be the case until we get some really standout signals. And what would the standout uh, signals be for you? What What are you looking for? Well, we're looking at signs of true recovery. So um, the key one there would be refinery margins. Refinery margins, uh, of which we kind of publish our own uh, for European and, and uh, Eastern markets. Uh, they're hovering around the kind of $150 to $2 per barrel range. Um, and that just really isn't enough to justify a huge ramp up in production because it basically means that the majority of the less complex refiners are struggling. Um, and it's particularly focused around the diesel market. So the diesel market are at all, all time lows. And again, it's important for refiners because a, a lot of the new refiners that have been built in the last few years are geared towards producing diesel. That was meant to be the king of the barrel. And that's meant to be what they wanted to produce the most of. Uh, and of course, with this situation and with the um, shipping rules that came in this year, not having the desired, what the expected impact on diesel. The IMO 2020 rules. The IMO 2020. A lot of people thought that would be a diesel uh, situation whereby uh, a lot of ship owners would use diesel uh, more. But actually, that never really held up because these guys' engines are you know, 80% residual fuel engines, uh, not diesel engines. So they've just switched to you know, very low sulfur fuel oil or, or scrubbers or that kind of thing. And it hasn't really had a knock-on effect on diesel as expected. So you've got a lot of built-up stocks in diesel in this expectation. You then got a lack of demand because of the whole obvious, obvious situation. Uh, and that's caused the, the diesel crack, the diesel um, refinery margin to be woeful and, and pretty much staying woeful. And any rally that comes off the back of you know, good headlines on stock draws in the US or whatever is is being sold into. So it's, it's keeping the prompt low and that's keeping the prompt refinery margin low, which means it's very difficult for refinery margin, sorry, for refineries to ramp up their production. So without that strong margin, it's unlikely we're going to get, you know, serious incremental demand uh, increase in crude, which will drive, you know, a meaningful recovery in the underlying market. But I also think it's, sorry, go on. And with refinery margins at one fifty to two dollar range, what would it need to go up to in order for that to be, you know, a truly bullish signal on oil? It would need to go up to three to four dollars. It's not because at the end of the day, as long as you're getting above kind of costs, and we're talking very generically here, right? It's not one dollar fifty to two dollars for the whole refineries. That's just a kind of benchmark uh, value that we're attributing using our calculations. But you know any any meaningful number above uh, what most refineries can cover costs for, say three dollars per barrel, then you're going to run maximum because if you're going to run you know maximum and make twenty five cents or run maximum and make three dollars, you're still making money, so you're going to do it. So that that is what we need to see, and we think it's going to be driven, as you say, by any kind of diesel recovery. And there's two things there. Um, one, the NAPFA cracks, uh, the light ends cracks, uh, they're doing very very well. They're almost well, they have been positive. Um, sometimes small negative, which is pretty unheard of for, for the NAPFA market, um, generally speaking. And with that so strong, uh, it, which makes sense because the whole petrochemical demand coming through, you know, petrochemical guys are buying NAPFA to, to crack into petrochemicals. Um, that generally makes sense and should add a lot to the refinery margin, but it just shows you how weak um, diesel is. 
Uh, but there, there is evidence, particularly in the US, that their maximi- the refiners in the US are maximizing their um, utilization of uh, crude into gasoline over diesel. So usually they you know, respond to the market, both de- de- uh, gasoline and diesel able to make money. Uh, now diesel, obviously, a serious lack uh, oversupply. So they've maximized, you know, 1.8 to 1 ratio, I think is what I read last, uh, to ensure that they're producing as much gasoline over diesel as possible. Uh, and that's had, you know, knock-on effects on the numbers. There's been some good stock draws, as I say, they're being sold into. Um, but the other thing is, you know, it's it's kind of the conversation's gone a bit away from Jet. It used to be very, you know, Jet was obviously the biggest dog in the market, very big sell-off, and any recovery there would be, uh, improving to the refinery margin as well. Um, but actually, it's had, had pretty serious recovery, Jet. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, for it, to, for it to drive an overall recovery is relatively unlikely because actual the actual Jet production compared to diesel is, is, is not that big. So in our minds, it's all, it's all about the, the diesel recovery. And um, you know, as soon as we are in a sustained uh, economic recovery, that should, that should kind of move like for like. Um, but it's not like, I mean, this talk of second wave, it's, I mean, it's kind of a different discussion, but I just, you know, there's, there's a serious, uh, what evidence from, from the utilization of diesel evidence from people actually using it and the roads and the rest of it. I don't think we're in a similar situation like we were before. It's whatever does happen. I can't see it being as catastrophic as it was. And also there's all these things in place like production cuts in the OPEC, like low refinery utilization, you know, for diesel in place to try and counteract the downward effect. But um, as I say, it's all about the diesel market really for us. Okay, so we're not going back to negative oil. Patrick, let, let me bring you in here. Um, are you on the same uh, sort of outlook as Greg, you know, seeing things pretty much range bound, I, I guess, for now and, and looking for that um, signal for what for you is the signal? I think he nailed it. Um, and things are definitely different over here in the States to where um, this March, April decline in transportation um, because of this uh, COVID situation. I, there may be a second wave. Um, there may be more cases, but the U.S. is not going to shut down like it did last time. Um, I can't answer for uh, the European countries, but over here, we're basically done with it. Um, there are more people on the roads. I'm now um, in uh, car-to-car traffic on the way uh, downtown in Houston like I was a year ago. Um, people are back on the roads. People um, are opening up over here. And even if there is this second wave, I don't think we're going to shut down again. The only difference is um, I don't know if we'll ever get back to the same demand that we were – uh, eight months ago, because um, a lot of people are actually uh, working from home and they may stay at home. You, you read um, the headlines that some people may be at home forever. I mean, a lot of companies are letting their employees stay. So this traffic, um, I, I don't know if we'll ever get back to the same demand that we were a year ago. Okay, so that, uh, as, that's in- interesting, Patrick. Let, let me just push you further on that i mean if we if we stay in this you know we're not back to where we were earlier this year but certainly a more depressed demand environment how do oil distribution companies how do logistics companies survive this longer term oh that's an excellent question and uh, I'm afraid we're going to see $40 crude i mean everyone saw it go negative everyone saw it go to um, 150 but 
I don't see um, demand coming back anytime soon. Um, the same with flights. Uh, flights are picking up, but there are some age groups like my grandparents that just, I don't know if they'll ever fly again. Um, just, just the fear of it. Um, they'll take short trips. I mean, what's funny is every year we take a, a trip somewhere overseas. This year, we're driving everywhere. We're seeing more of the states. So uh, I think uh, air demand is going to be down and, and probably stay down for a while. Um, I, I don't see a catalyst right now that's going to uh, get us back up to where crude is in such demand that we're seeing 60 and $70. So we now have some confidence that a vaccine is on its way sometime pretty soon, given the announcement of successful results of trials. What we've yet to see, though, is actual physical deployment of these vaccines by air, ship, road, around the world. What does that massive logistical challenge look like from the oil market perspective? Well, just that either way you look at it, there's going to be a demand spike. It's just whether or not that spike can be uh, live out you know, go for a long time, sustained period or not, which I guess it could if it's a vaccine, right? You end up, you know, boosting the economy on the back of it. So the sustained jet demand from moving the um, vaccines around the world can also translate into, you know, a sustained economic recovery and then sustained jet fuel demand. And then the whole thing can, whole complex can improve. Uh, but yeah, so the, the vaccines out there at the moment, we are looking at you know, just from my own reading, um, Brazil wanting to commit to buying uh, vaccines in China. And that was a huge journey. Um, you have London in Oxford, who um, are very far within their clinical clinical trials in their phase three. And that I think the US is committed to buying quite a considerable amount. Um, there's German vaccines. So basically, there's vaccines in all these areas around the world, and it's going to be moved all around the world. So we talked earlier about stocks uh, being an issue. Um, the jet fuel stocks and the diesel stocks, you know, will go right into that uh, demand area. Um, and this is the thing about the oil market. It could be such an overnight move. It can be so very, very quick because, you know, you're a lot of the time we're trading forward markets. We're trading one or two months ahead. And, you know, you can bet the oil traders moving all around will seize the opportunity, you know, to move out their stocks, to start moving all around the world um, strategically, in particular jet, to accommodate the demand. And then, you know, we should see the derivative, like the jet derivatives perform very well off the back of it. And it's probably already in motion. We saw quite a considerable jet recovery uh, relative to diesel prices not so long ago. Um, and, you know, if you were if you were looking forward and you were positioning on a speculative basis, the risk reward is definitely to the upside particularly if you structure your trade pretty well. Um, and that, and that, could be, um, that could be very interesting. But as I say, if you have vaccines that need to be moved and then they are going to ease the situation, which will lead to an economic improvement, we could very quickly see the whole derivative market pricing in um, a sustained recovery. And, uh, you know, we talked about refinery margins and you would see it immediately from there. But actually, you know, the, that's the way the forward market works. The futures market works. People can react to this ahead of time. And you could see quite a considerable um, performance quite quickly. And remember, we're in a period at the moment of uh, deficit in terms of standard oil production. So if this recovery happens very quickly and OPEC don't commit to producing you know, more oil, then a price spike is 
you know, quite inevitable. And the other thing is, you know, there's a hell of a lot of open interest to go into the market, as I was saying before. Not not many people are betting on a recovery right now. There's not it's not a saturated market. Volatility is low. The oil market's not really moving because there's no one really betting on it. So you can bet that if this happens, there's a lot of open interest to go in the long side. It could be quite an abrupt move upward. How do you see prices moving on the back of sustained positive news on a vaccine actually having it made its way out of the labs and onto the transport networks? Well, as I say, it's if, if all the pieces are together, that's what creates you know the biggest, the best possible momentum for the market will come if we can if we are still in a situation where there's not much open interest in this in the contracts, i.e. there's not many people having committed to a long or short position, um, if OPEC maintains this production cut, and if, um, generally speaking, it's quite an abrupt move for the vaccines, I'm not sure if that's the case. It does certainly looks like that. It certainly looks like you know, all the governments around the world, major governments around the world, they're pre-ordering because they don't want to miss it. They don't want to look bad i guess in their in their own country if they don't provide the most readily available vaccine straight away so it's a rush to get the most uh, likely vaccine that's going to get approved pre-ordered so yeah i guess it could be very abrupt so with all that at once yeah god you're looking at um a, a pretty serious price spike that could be anywhere between 10 to 20 dollars more to narrow it down probably I reckon around fifteen dollars because we were we were healthily at sixty dollars uh, in January this year. Um, I think we could get back up to there reasonably quickly within a week or two um, if if this all comes in. And you know you know what news can be like. And one of my favourite things to do is to just Google oil if I want to get the idea of sentiment. And you type it in in news and you read all these articles saying, oh, reason why oil will never recover, the reason why oil stocks are dead and, you know, gloom, 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 gloom. And it adds to the momentum of, you know, the rhetoric being we're not going to recover. And then you see it flip very quickly. And as soon as you get those articles where the kind of masses are starting to appreciate that, oh, God, we could actually really recover very quickly. I'm going to believe it myself. They're already too late, but they'll add to the open interest on the upside. And that's what causes this kind of real uh push upward you have like the early movers and then a very sharp move that will come when there's more hysteria around the uh you know the public rhetoric and and people talking about it okay uh, so it's, it's it's a huge contrarian opportunity basically that that is going to come at some point to the market greg let, let me ask you more about um what was i suppose in the background before covid if we can cast our minds back to that very different world where you know it's kind of all about shale and it was all about um the oil moving from the US, US going to net exports for the first time, um, production in Mexico, Latin America. How do you fit that geographic picture now, the US centric geographic picture into what might happen next for oil? Well, it was interesting to hear about yeah, the deregulation uh, in Mexico is certainly interesting. Um, but actually, the wider Latin American area is becoming more and more focused on oil, um, mainly because uh, there have been a lot of proven reserves, shell reserves in, uh, in Latin American areas. Um, I think Argentina's got an enormous reserve of oil in, in shale rock. Um, so they're wising up to the fact that they can economically uh, dig up this oil. 
And um, that whole Latin American space is very attractive to the Chinese refiners and actually the US refiners as well. And the reason is, is because the general grade of oil that comes, or crude oil that comes from that area is heavy, right? It produces, it's basically low quality and produces more uh, naturally more diesels and the rest of it. And whereas right now that might not be very attractive, it will be in the future again, um, because either way you look at it, the refineries that are being built around the world, they're more complex. So the more complex, that means the cheaper, crappier oil you can buy, and the more you can make, you can customize it into what product you want. So the new Chinese refineries and the complex refineries in the US Gulf Coast, they love this oil because it's so cheap. Uh, on a, on a market basis, it's always discounted to the general market. And that's where shale comes in because shale in the US is um, more light. And um, that isn't really loved by the US Gulf Coast refiners who, who do the bulk of the refinery in the US because it's too expensive. And they'd rather buy Canadian oil, which is this heavy kind of muck, it's uh, like from oil sands. They'd rather buy that, you know, $20 per barrel, whatever it is, uh, consistently, rather than buy shale at 40 and um, refine it that way. And they'll send back to the Canadian refiners their shale oil, who don't have, they don't have as complex refiners in, in, in Canada. So I guess it's looking pretty good for Latin America if they continue to produce this type of oil. However, you know, I, I've got to admit, I don't know, um, as I say, that the shale reserves that I talked about in Argentina, for instance, I'm not sure the grade there, but Latin America is generally known to be producing this heavier type grade. And as I said, the Chinese have long been um, source, sourcing oil from Latin America. It's kind of gone under the radar. Um, and, you know, maybe that's going to be quite, quite topical because with the U.S. trade war, one of the, one of the great things, great things, one of the big things that... Um, is easy to easier to keep the trade balance is oil. So Chinese commit to buying U.S. oil, and U.S. are trying to ramp up their exports. But if China are seeing that there's much more value from just next door in Latin America, which I know they do, and, and they could continue to, um, that may might make it harder for them to justify buying U.S. Uh, so it's, it's a really interesting area uh, north of U.S. in Canada, south of U.S. in Latin America, and the U.S. itself. It's all very very important to the overall uh, world of oil really is it an argument for any spike that you might see in oil and, and you you very eloquently uh, gave the scenario of, of vaccines and you know a rush to transportation and a sustained economic recovery you know that that kind of oil spike taking oil perhaps to 60 dollars again where it was in january given the new supply that's coming on board and the complex refinery capabilities that we're seeing. Is that an argument for any spike in oil with a COVID-19 vaccine, with a sustained economic recovery, for that spike being relatively short-lived because you are seeing that supply side coming on board to meet any increased demand? I think I understand what you're saying, but it's just, it depends how you look at the oil market. I mean, ultimately, um, I don't believe the oil market is really very well understood in terms of what we actually mean by it. So I think what we're saying is Brent futures, you know, the headline price right now is $42 per barrel. If you want to see Brent up at $80, you know, you need to see a lot of people speculating and, and worried about OPEC production cuts. And that's why OPEC love it, right? I mean, they came out a couple of months ago 
the uh, Saudi um, oil minister and said, you know, anyone who wants to be short oil, you know, I'm going to destroy them. Basically, it was very like very direct and saying, you know, we're going to make sure that the oil price goes high. And what he means is, he doesn't want anyone any sell volume coming in on a speculative basis. He wants people to be speculating on the upside, and they're very happy and they want to see these price spikes going as high as possible. Um, and it's, it's it's important to remember that is that it ultimately Brent futures are just a speculative financial contract. You'll still see physical prices around the world heavily discounted. In fact. When you get these kind of price recoveries or price spikes in Brent futures, you'll see the differentials to for the physical oil to the benchmark to Brent uh, crude uh, widen out. So, for instance, uh, you know, a, an oil that just isn't going to get uh, better priced, like say Canadian oil, that's not going to rally or not going to keep pace with the Brent crude futures speculative spike. That will just get a deeper and dis- a deeper and deeper discount. You go from minus ten or twenty down to minus 30 or 40. That's how it will compensate for this rally in the, in the crude futures. So it's worth noting. I mean, it, it's not necessarily this huge knock-on effect that people seem to think. We're just benchmarking against crude futures. So that's the first thing. But secondly, like genuinely on the production, you know, we are in a deficit in terms of where we can be. And I guess we thought, well, I certainly thought that OPEC had a lot of diminished power uh, in the last few years. But actually... Who knew they'd be able to coordinate such such a deep cut? You know, ten percent of their production, they've done it. And um, the Saudis are not mincing their words. I think they they see themselves and clearly are very much the ones that decide it. I mean, it was kind of we used to think, oh, is Saudi you know the, the main voice in the room? Yeah, probably. But now it's like no, they they run the whole thing. They don't care what anyone else says. They say you will do this. And I think their last meeting was basically only a meeting, so they could tell off the United. Arab Emirates saying, you guys have been producing over your quota. What are you doing? Go back down. And that was the whole point of the meeting. They wanted to maintain these production cuts. So if that maintains, and yes, we have a demand increase, well, it's in, it's in their interest to wait a few months to see the oil price in a more, a more of a sustained recovery before they start to drip feed back into the market. So that's 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 the game we're in. We're not in a omnipotent kind of supply and demand market where those forces rule all. I mean, not at all, really. And in fact, that's the way I see it. Not as I don't know other people down to minus thirty or forty. That's how it will compensate for this rally in the, in the crude futures. So it's worth noting. I mean, it, it's not necessarily this huge knock-on effect that people seem to think. We're just benchmarking against crude futures. So that's the first thing. But secondly, like genuinely on the production, you know, we are in a deficit in terms of where we can be. And I guess we thought. Well, I certainly thought that OPEC had a lot of diminished power. Uh, in the last few years, but actually, who knew they'd be able to coordinate such such a deep cut? You know, ten percent of their production, they've done it, and um, the Saudis are not mincing their words. I think they they see themselves and clearly are very much the ones that decide it. I mean, it was kind of we used to think, oh, is Saudi you know the, the main voice in the room? Yeah, probably. But now it's like no, they they run the whole thing. They don't care what anyone else says. They say you will do this, and I think their last meeting was basically only a meeting so they could tell off the United Arab Emirates saying, you guys have been producing over your quota. What are you doing? Go back down. And that was the whole point of the meeting. They wanted to maintain these production cuts. So if that maintains, and yes, we have a demand increase, well, it's in, it's in their interest to wait a few months to see the oil price in a more, of a, a more of a sustained recovery before they start to drip feed back into the market. So that's, that's, that's the game we're in. We're not in a omnipotent kind of supply and demand market where those forces rule all. I mean, not at all, really. 
And in fact, that's the way I see it. Not necessarily, I don't know other people, but uh, that's my take on it, generally speaking. Okay, well, thank you, Greg. You covered a lot of ground there. Patrick, what's your perspective on some of the themes that Greg mentioned here? Um, specifically, I think he nails it with um, everything's going to revolve around this vaccine that we hopefully will find. As, as we've discussed in the past, um, several com commodities are traded, such as natural gas or power, uh, crude, where natural gas is more localized crude, um, as we all know. Um, if anything happens anywhere in the world, it affects the price of crude. You could have war in the Middle East or a, a, a new finding in Congo or a oil rig offshore Gulf of Mexico going down. Everything affects the price of crude. But right now, there is uh, one thing that is um, sitting heaviest than anything else. And of course, it's this COVID environment. Um, as you see, uh, of all the fluctuations now, typically they're to the downside. Um, where we were um, $60 for a very long time up until March, uh, we've been consistently floating around 40 now. So I think um, with the lower demand and all of the surplus um, putting product in storage everywhere, um, we're ready for some spikes, which typically happen when cold weather hits in the winter or um, you've got heat in the summer. But, but right now, there's so much storage um, that that spikes are are tampered. The only thing I really see, as he mentioned, um, creating this spike again is the comfort level for people to fly again. The the businesses coming back to full capacity, um, drivers back on the road. And right now, there's that one thing in everyone's mind. It's um, the concern for COVID. So um, he's right. There are many people right now trying to. Um, find a vaccine uh, for this. But until we do, um, I, I think that's that's what's going to drive the market right now. As you saw overnight, uh, we're down 5% because um, Germany has uh, more lockdowns, France has more lockdowns, and, and we're having issues over here in the States as well. So given what we know now, we can't assume a vaccine in the immediate future, you know, this year, um, how do you see the holiday period and the new year shaping up? That's a great question. Um, it, it's going to be different for travel reasons. A lot of people travel over the holidays. Um, and I'm one of them. I mean, we visit grandparents every year. Um, but we're not going to uh, this year for two reasons. They're concerned uh, because of COVID fears. Uh, they keep saying, um, come next month, honey, uh, come next month, honey. So uh, there are a lot of people that are going to be staying away from visiting relatives. I mean, Thanksgiving is the time to come together. And this is going to be the first Thanksgiving in my 52 years that everyone's not coming together to one place because we just it, it's um, just a little piece of concern that we could get one of our um older members of the family sick, it's just not worth it. So we may all get together over spring break and have a turkey. But uh, I, I think the holidays right now are going to be uh, muted for transportation. Yes, will you still drive somewhere? But will you be taking that vacation um, skiing in Colorado this year? Probably not. You will probably postpone that until uh, next year or take a cruise over the summer. Um, I think 
this holiday season is going to be different than one I've experienced because I don't see something right now unless this vaccine that we talked about that hopefully will come soon uh, hits the market soon. I mean, it's it's already late October, uh, so so we're only a month or two months away from major holidays, and I, I don't see right now something that's going to um, change the demand level or the comfort level for people to travel. Yeah. Thanksgiving on Zoom could be a completely different experience. Let's hope that uh, we, we can all get together pretty soon after that. Um, Patrick Hayes of Inatech, Greg Newman of Onyx Capital Group, thank you so much for all of your deep insights into oil trading. If you're interested in the topics raised in the, this podcast, you can get in touch by visiting the Knowledge Hub at inatech.com, where you can subscribe for free and let us know please, the topics you're interested in for future podcasts. I'm Gavin Serkin. See you next time.